Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Welcome back. I would say, if I had to bet, whoever you are, you've probably flown in an airplane. Today, I'm delighted to have Gary Leff on the podcast. We're going to be talking about airlines, airline bailouts, some travel. Gary probably has one of the most interesting profiles. He's the chief financial officer at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, but he's also a renowned expert on airline, hotel, and credit card loyalty programs. He was named one of the top five voices to listen to on business travel by Inside Flyer magazine and one of the five travel experts to follow on Twitter by Condé Nast Travel. He has a great blog that I think everyone should read called View from the Wing. Gary has also helped my family on more than one occasion when we need to change our travel plans or something like that a few years ago when my dad died and again this summer. So thank you, Gary, for that. And welcome to the podcast. Well, I, I, I always uh, am somewhat both heartened to be able to help people, but sad that it's often when they're dealing with uh, challenging circumstances. And, you know, airlines can certainly be challenging to deal with. Uh, things in my own travel go sideways uh, as often as they don't. And I sort of wonder, you know, I'm supposed to know how these things work, how the median person manages to get from A to B sometimes, uh, because the rules have grown uh, so uh, opaque and complex. So to begin, let's go on to the first question. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, you know, I would hesitate to make it generational uh, and assume what people your age uh, know or don't versus uh, people of other ages. There are probably things that we all learn uh, over time uh, that may not seem obvious, but I suspect that, you know, on the whole, uh, people in younger generations, you know, perhaps know more uh, than I did at a similar point in my own life, simply because of access to greater information. So if I think about, you know, what should people uh, know generally that they don't, or you know, perhaps even offering something that seems obvious once it's mentioned, uh, but that we often don't think about, uh, and sticking in some sense with with my own um, uh, area of expertise in airlines, and then broadening out the advice, it would be to say, you know, think about the people that you deal with uh, in really any aspect of your life as uh, people uh, with agency who face their own set of incentives. And what I mean by that in a concrete sense in airlines is, you know, look, if you have a flight that gets uh, delayed or canceled and you wind up in a customer service line, think about the person 
who's dealing with you in that line. And they've been dealing with, you know, 20, 30, 100 unhappy people. It's really not a very fun uh, experience to be, frankly, the, to be often the target of that, of the passenger's ire. It's not their fault that there was a delay or a cancellation, but they're the, you know, physical manifestation of the airline in that moment. And so they're, you know, dealing with unhappy people and, you know, they're being blamed for a lot of things. And frankly, they're unhappy. And they get no benefit from actually helping you. Their benefit is from, you know, moving you on uh, to the next stage in the process and dealing with the next person and finally being done with their day. And gosh, given that set of incentives, why on earth are they going to help you? And so my first piece of advice there is just to be nice, right? And give them a reason to want to uh, help you earn some sympathy, uh, make them see you as a person the way most people aren't seeing them as a person and treat them as one, as a person. So, you know, I'll often go up to that person and say, yeah, um, you know, you know, I'm just, I'm just giving another problem for you today. And I'll sort of joke about it and I'll say, gosh, I'm sure you're having probably a worse day than I am because I'm <laughs> only one traveler who's stranded and you've had to deal with probably a hundred of us. Um, and, you know, make them smile, make them laugh, and they might go a little bit farther for you. And it's not any different than when you're dealing with the, uh, say, your cable company or your phone provider. You're talking to someone at a call center who maybe uh, is measured, you know, not in how helpful they are, but in how quickly they got you off the phone, right? And so, you know, their incentive that they're facing is anything other than to be helpful. It's not a repeat game where they're likely to talk with you again or interact with you again ever. So, you know, treat them as a person and, you know, make them see you as somebody going through the same things they are and, uh, and give them a reason to help you. And, you know, when you think about everyone that you're dealing with as, you know, a, as a, a person and, you know, how can you uh, get them to do what you want? It's often not uh, yelling at them. It's often not demanding uh, because they may not be, have any reason to respond to that. Uh, it's often just trying to get them on your side. So, you know, be nice is the first piece, but uh, also given that it's not a, often a, um, a repeat interaction, it's usually not worth arguing with the person that you're dealing with. It's usually a better strategy to find someone else to deal with if you're not getting the answer that you want. So in an airline, uh, in an airport, uh, you know, you've got the uh, check-in counter, you've got the gate, uh, you've got uh, telephone reservations, you've got Twitter, you've got a kiosk, you might have access to an airline lounge. There's a good half dozen bites at the Apple that you can get different people to deal with who may give you a different answer. And if you don't get the answer you want the first time on a phone call, uh, it may be because that's just going to be the answer, but it may be uh, that you're not getting the full or effort of the person you're talking to. I never assume something's a no until I've heard it three times. Uh, and so yeah, piece of advice is really just think about people with agency that face their own incentives. This is a beautiful answer. A few months ago, I remember reading an article where airline CEOs were called the true welfare queens of the pandemic due to all the bailout money they received. Can you give us an idea of how much money the airlines received? So it is a little bit complicated to add it up in all the different ways in which it came. Um, but uh, roughly speaking, there was uh, $50 billion in uh, direct cash payments to uh, U.S. airlines. But that does not represent the full uh, gamut. There was also $25 billion in uh, federally backed uh, subsidized loans for airlines. And there were other forms of subsidies that were new during the pandemic. There was a waiver of 
the 7.5% excise tax on all domestic tickets that are sold for uh, 2020, uh, there, which has a whole bunch of connotations to it because uh, when an airline even sells frequent flyer miles, uh, that tax applies in the assumption that the miles are being redeemed for domestic travel. There were um, tens of billions of dollars allocated to uh, airports, which indirectly subsidized the airlines because they influenced the amount of money that was being charged to uh, those airlines. And because in some cases, airlines receive a portion of profits from concessions and airline. And, and airports were able to offset some of the costs that vendors in the airports received. Um, then there was also uh, billions of dollars for uh, contractors in the aviation industry as well. So there are numerous ways in which the airlines were subsidized above and beyond the subsidies that they uh, receive on a regular basis uh, during the pandemic. And it amounted you know, to you know, depending on how you count, um, you know, over a hundred billion dollars. That is a lot of money. <laughs> and for me, hearing welfare and airlines in the same sentence, with airlines being such a big business, and also already knowing that they're so intertwined with government, my spidey sense for cronyism just goes haywire. Listeners, if you're interested in cronyism, learning either what it is or taking a deep dive into how it plays out. You should go listen to my conversations with Tim Carney and Matt Mitchell. But for now, let's ignore the results of the bailouts. I want to review the arguments that the airlines made for why they needed these extra bailout subsidies, all of that. I wouldn't be that surprised if they resemble the arguments made by many businesses when engaging in activities that have cronyism. I mean, so certainly it's being framed as uh, for the public good and for the good of employees rather than businesses, right? Now, um, initially, uh, the argument that seemed to work was uh, to protect employees so they wouldn't have to lay off employees. And then to, you know, as the bailouts concern continued, because they uh, occurred in three different tranches, you know, to ensure that uh, every that the airlines were ready to serve passengers when passengers were ready to fly again. So the idea was let's keep everyone employed and then they're going to be ready to fly. Airlines are going to be at you know, their full capability because they are strategically important to the economy uh, and you know, on a number of different levels. So uh, now, in, in fact, when we start to get into what actually happened and what was done with the money, um, that wasn't what happened. Uh, and when we get into how much money was needed to uh, accomplish that goal, that also wasn't what happened. Uh, we, we didn't need you know, even, uh, we needed about 10 to 15% of the money would have accomplished that goal if the airlines had used it in the fashion that it was, it, it was framed that it was going to be necessary. Uh, so here's what I mean by that. Um, the first CARES Act tranche of money was $25 billion in payroll subsidies and $25 billion for, uh, in federally backed loans. Uh, but there were additional you know, $15 and $14 billion pieces of legislation that provided for more uh, subsidies for payroll. Again, the idea is that the airlines had to spend the money that they were being given by the federal government on payroll and on nothing else. And of course they did that, but the airlines weren't going to lay everyone off at the time of the second and third uh, bailouts. Instead, we actually know what the maximum number of layoffs might've been. 
because they happened. Uh, after the CARES Act uh, restrictions on laying off workers lapsed September 30th of 2020, uh, you had fewer than 40,000 uh, workers who were actually furloughed in the industry. Uh, that then, uh, in providing the additional money, we know that at most you were um, protecting those 40,000 uh, jobs, and we provided 29 billion to do it. And roughly speaking, we're talking about you know close to a million dollars per job saved on an annualized basis, right? So clearly, you know, these are not people who are making a million dollars a year. Right? So it, the, the most of the money was actually going to uh, the shareholders of the airline and creditors. Uh, it was keeping the airlines uh, who were losing a lot of money from and out of Chapter 11 bankruptcy, uh, keeping the creditors whole. And the interesting reason of why, you know, this was primarily pushed publicly by employee unions. Airlines are one of the most heavily unionized industries in the country. And it was employee unions that were you know, out promoting this. And it wasn't really about saving uh, jobs per se. It was about keeping the airlines out of bankruptcy because they were worried that in bankruptcy, their contracts would be, uh, you know, rewritten through the chapter 11 process. Um, so uh, it was keeping uh, current contracts in their form, they were willing to put themselves on the line as the you know, a, 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 for the narrative uh, for why the bailouts were necessary. Uh, but even though the money was going primarily to to shareholders and creditors, uh, and by the time we reached the third bailout, the the narrative had very much shifted. Um, they said, "Look, uh, this money is necessary." Uh, not just to keep employees ready to work, but to keep the airlines ready to transport vaccines, um, which was in and of itself a bizarre argument because uh, most of the vaccine transportation was going to be occurring through uh, you know, Federal, Federal Express and UPS, um, that the U.S. domestic airlines, like they, they don't carry a lot of cargo domestically. Uh, Narrowbody aircraft, Boeing 737s, Airbus A320s are not big cargo planes. It's those wide-body aircraft that fly internationally that carry a lot of cargo. And so you know, it, it was true that U.S. airlines would be shipping vaccines around the world from the U.S., but it wasn't really portrayed as we've got to keep the airlines ready to uh, ship vaccines to other countries. Like that wasn't the argument for the subsidies. It was framed as though we we needed that to uh, to get them to U.S. consumers. Um, and you could have accomplished that by numerous other means anyway, like um, just guaranteeing the cargo payments contracted for in advance uh, by the federal government. But again, it was just using any you know, narrative of the moment as a justification for you know, large amounts of money. And as I say, the money wasn't even actually spent, kept keeping the airlines ready to fly. Uh, take American Airlines that actually, fur that actually uh, shed 30% of its workforce uh, despite the, of its non-union workforce, despite the subsidies, uh, because they, uh, imp they they basically pressured everyone to take uh, voluntary leaves, uh, voluntary early retirements, uh, under the threat of you know termination September 30 if they didn't get more funding. Uh, so they they did shed numerous employees uh, instead of keeping pilots in the air. American Airlines, when they were getting the money, they were keeping pilots, they were paying them to stay home and not to stay current because it was less expensive. And so when passengers were ready to fly again, uh, when passengers were ready to fly, the airlines didn't have the pilots fully uh, trained and current so that they could fly. And indeed, that they could fly the 
um, schedule that the airline was publishing and they were forced to you know, cancel large numbers of flights because uh, they didn't use the money the way that they had you know, said it was going to be used. Um, so it was, you know, we didn't actually get, get what we thought we were paying for either. In December of 2021, the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation held a hearing to investigate these bailouts. And during the hearing, we heard many of the arguments repeated by these airline CEOs to very gullible senators, this big, oh, we're keeping everybody safe. We're going to like, you know. So let's separate the myth from the facts here. First, while the coronavirus crisis is both a public health and an economic tragedy, does it justify the government bailing out airlines before they even took other available steps to potentially avoid the need for a bailout? And what are some of those potential steps? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting is um, the airline said, look, we need the bailout money to, so that we're still here so we don't go out of business. But that's not actually what happens without, uh, without the funding. Um, the airlines, in fact, in particular, in all likelihood, um, United and American might have faced Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, you know, Delta, neither Delta nor Southwest Airlines ever furloughed any workers, and they had committed you know, not to do so. Um, and you know, likely would have been fine without the money. So we gave the money in, equal, in proportion to, their, uh, to the airline size. Uh, to all the airlines, including those that were never going to furlough anyone. Um, but you know, United and American may very well have faced a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but that does not mean not flying anymore, that there's no longer the capacity to move people around or get them where they're going. You still have the pilots, you still have the gates, you still have the planes. In fact, Every one of the of the large legacy airlines has flown through bankruptcy in the past. American Airlines uh, has been in bankruptcy. They were in bankruptcy a decade ago. Um, U.S. Airways, which uh, effectively acquired American Airlines out of bankruptcy, had itself been in bankruptcy twice. Uh, Delta Airlines was in bankruptcy around the same time that the airline Northwest that it acquired was in bankruptcy as well. United Airlines uh, entered uh, entered bankruptcy in 2002. Uh, it merged with Continental that itself had been in bankruptcy uh, twice uh, as, as well. Uh, so these they all have experience flying through bankruptcy, uh, doing that uh, safely. It represents a change in uh, control of the carrier. In other words, it would have meant uh, that the owners, the equity holders of the airline would take a haircut. It means potentially that the uh, debt holders uh, take a haircut. And instead of their taking the haircut, the um, uh, taxpayers did, right? And so it was a, a shifting who bears that cost. Now, uh, that has a new number of other dynamics involved. I mentioned that in bankruptcy, uh, some of the uh, you know em employee contracts can get rewritten or or imposed. And so that may change the terms under which employees work. Airlines, uh, some airlines have uh, managed to offload their pension plans uh, on the federal government uh, during bankruptcy. And that means that the recipient's getting less. I do think there are problems with the bankruptcy process. I think that pensions ought to receive higher priority than simply being treated as unsecured creditors, for instance, uh, in bankruptcy. The, if um, a pay that is owed to an employee has priority and the company continues to pay its employees, they ought to be treating you know, pensions as 
you know, deferred as you know, deferred compensation in the same way as current compensation, I think, or at least giving employees, you know, some of the equity in the reconstituted airline if they lose uh, their pension. But that's not the way the current law works. So there are, you know, I think problems and potential reforms, but ultimately what would have been looking at, um, uh, at bankruptcy for a couple of the players and, you know, there's an argument to be made that um, Southwest and Delta might have been better off if they had not received the subsidies because they would have allowed this would have allowed the weaker players to uh, fail and become reconstituted. Um, and so in, instead of being propped up uh, to be a you know, drain, um, a competitive drain on the, the stronger airlines. But uh, ultimately, it was a matter of redistributing uh, the who bore the cost from uh, creditors and shareholders to taxpayers. Who are the biggest beneficiaries of the bailouts? You've kind of touched on this a little. Yeah, right. So, I mean, there were billions of dollars that went to the largest airlines. The money was you know, given out largely based on size. Uh, but, and, and so the biggest amounts went to American Airlines. Uh, you know, if there's a, if there's a single person who benefited the most, you know, perhaps it's, uh, Doug Parker, the retiring uh, chairman and CEO of American who, you know, himself owns over 2 million shares of, of the, you know, of, of the airline. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's the, the people that benefited the most were the large uh, shareholders and, and whoever would have had to take a big uh, haircut, uh, on their debt, you know, uh, leaseholders on, on planes, for instance. Don't shareholders and creditors always benefit the most from bailouts, regardless of industry and just in the past with airlines? And if that's the case, why do we continue to bail out airlines? And maybe more importantly, or depressingly perhaps, why are politicians always, 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 it's a guarantee they will be shocked that the bailouts don't work? When they don't work, they're in shock every single time. Well, so I'm not going to speak to all bailouts and all industries that I haven't uh, spent a long time looking at. I mean, at, at first approximation, that that sounds right, but I wouldn't uh, I, I wouldn't make the broader claim. I can say that in the airline industry, I mean, it's a really interesting case uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, for if you look, I mentioned uh, Doug Parker, who uh, is is stepping down at the end of March as uh, as the uh, CEO of American Airlines. Uh, he began his career uh, in aviation, you know, working at American and a couple of other airlines, but he became CEO of America West Airlines days before 9-11. And in 2019, as he was beginning to you know, think about uh, his legacy 20 years in as, as an airline CEO, uh, he spoke about, you know, the sort of the, the defining moment of his career being, you know, after 9-11, uh, it was uh, securing federal bailouts for America West. Uh, it was, you know, so 20 years earlier, uh, it was federal injection of cash into American West that kept it from, uh, going into chapter 11 and, you know, kept him in the role of CEO. He went on to acquire U.S. Airways, um, out of its second bankruptcy. And part of the way that he did that was by getting the federal pension benefit guarantee corporation on his side, um, because it would, if had American airlines been able to, uh, liquidate its pension plans and, and force those on the federal government, um, it would have become the largest uh, creditor in the bankruptcy. And so, you know, the creditors committee supported, uh, the U S airways takeover. So it was government involvement that you know, helped to put him in control at uh, American airlines. And he pretty much spent, 
most of his time in DC during the pandemic as the head of the airline, the, 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 the single thing that he could do that he believed that was most impactful for his business was um, spending his time in Washington rather than, you know, managing the airline. Um, it's really interesting to me because uh, about five and a half years ago, the largest U.S. airlines, American, Delta, and United, embarked on a huge campaign to lobby the federal government to effectively limit access to U.S. markets by uh, three large uh, Middle Eastern carriers, uh, Emirates, Etihad, and Qatar Airways, on the argument that they were unfairly subsidized by their governments, that you know, U.S. airlines were not subsidized, and it wasn't fair uh, that they should have to compete against these uh, these other carriers. And so, despite treaty obligations that the U.S. had allowing these airlines access to our market, they wanted the U.S. government to you know block them, limit flights, effectively limit uh, competition, limit consumer choice, and raise prices. And it was a five-year campaign that was ultimately a dud. In fact. Uh, American Airlines has entered into a much closer uh, commercial relationship with Qatar Airways over the last couple of years after they failed to get the government to block them from entering the country. Um, so you know, they've, they've sort of claimed that to be unsubsidized and then all of a sudden you know, love subsidies. And when asked about this, they just claim, well, you know, circumstances are different. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, as far as why um, government policy doesn't work the way uh, it is sold and why uh, like politicians keep believing it. I mean, I suspect, you know, it, it's like, uh, you know, Claude Rains in Casablanca. I'm shocked, shocked to find that there's gambling going on here. I mean, surely they know uh, at the time, or at least, you know, some of them, uh, some of them know better. But, you know, at the moment when you're facing a large number of employee layoffs, uh, like I wrote in May of 2020, after the first bailout, uh, which was you know, promised to be everything that was needed. Uh, the CEO of United Airlines was began talking about how they would be laying off a whole bunch of workers uh, when the money expired, when they were allowed to lay uh, workers off on September 30th, how he was you know, being very forthright about their plans because it dovetailed with large layoffs uh, mere weeks before the presidential election uh, and congressional elections, right? And so you know, we talked about earlier, you know, thinking about the people you deal with as people with agency that face their own set of incentives. That's really just public choice economics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the it's very difficult for a politician to say to a large number of voters in their district that uh, I could have saved your job and didn't. It's difficult for a politician to say I could have saved air service to um, my small city and didn't. Uh, it's you know concentrated benefits and dispersed costs and a focus on the crisis rather than the uh, than the consequence. And so in this hearing that you talked about uh, a few weeks ago, uh, members of Congress were you know shocked shocked to find that the airlines didn't actually use the money they were given to you know stay. Uh, fully ready to transport passengers when they followed, for the most part, the letter of the law. I actually do think there were uh, a couple of things that were done in possible violation of it. Uh, When the second bailout came through, American Airlines told the employees that had been uh, let go uh, that, look, they were required to offer anybody that had been employed, you know, this pay. But 
um, they said that nobody who had taken another job was actually going to be eligible for it. Now, that was actually, that was the reverse of what Congress intended. Congress wanted the money to go to keep people attached to the airline, indeed to bring them back so that they would be working for the airline when passengers were ready to fly. And American didn't actually want them back and told them that they couldn't have the money if they had taken another job. So I'm not sure that was uh, in keeping with the uh, with the legislation. But for the most part, they followed the law. Uh, they largely wrote the law, uh, you know, handle, handing the details of what they you know, would agree to and suggested to the key members of Congress who, you know, who inserted into legislation. Um, and, you know, it's the, the folks who aren't really paying attention, uh, who were gaslighted into believing that this was uh, all going to protect jobs or somehow necessary to transport uh, vaccines, which it wasn't uh, in, in, you know, in very quick order. It seems really slimy, even the stuff within the confines of the law, which very well might be because they wrote the law and probably, probably actually is shaking my head over here. The president of Delta said that essentially it is a good guarantee to investors that the government can bail them out because now the government will always bail them out because it's happened before. What is the moral hazard problem that has come of this? Right. I mean, so it's it's not quite the same guarantee as um, in you know, government-sponsored enterprises, but you know, airlines have been demonstrated to be effectively that. Um, you know, it's not the first bailout they've gotten. They got three during the pandemic. Uh, it would be you know, and the federal government actually, in exchange for some of the bailouts, did get. Uh, warrants to purchase stock in the airlines. I mean, so to a certain extent, the airlines were partially nationalized uh, as a result of this. You know, airlines are actually, to begin with, you know, one of the more heavily regulated industries. There's a tremendous, uh, uh, the, the, the distinction between you know, there being government enterprises and being private enterprises. I mean, it exists. They're shareholder-owned corporations. But if you think about it, most of the travel experience is either you know, directly regulated by or provided by government. Uh, nearly every airport in the U.S., and this is not how it works in much of the world, uh, is owned by uh, local governments. Uh, the you know when you walk into the airport and go through security, it is uh, in most airports not just regulated by the federal government, but directly provided by the federal government, which is a weird way to do things where you have the service provider is also the regulator. Um, so they regulate themselves. I mean, that's hardly a best practice in promoting uh, accountability or, you know, best possible results. Um, but that's how we've set things up uh, post 9-11. Uh, when you, uh, once you're on the plane, uh, most of the elements in the aircraft you know, have to be approved by the federal government. An interesting story from the beginning of the pandemic. You might think that because individual passengers can bring on uh, hand sanitizer onto the plane, you know, you're allowed to bring 100 milliliters of liquid through TSA security, um, and you, know, you can bring hand sanitizer. They even increase the amount that individuals could bring through, um, you know, separate from the normal liquid limits that the airline could just give you hand sanitizer. Well, they were all promoting that they were going to hand out hand sanitizer, um, but it's not just something that an airline can do. They actually have to ask permission of the federal government. 
Uh, and each airline is, is involved multiple levels of permission because it's, you know, DC FAA permission, but also uh, each of the airline has their own certificate office within the FAA. They literally have their own regulator. Uh, there's an office that regulates them. Uh, huh. So you had to go to the FAA and say, can we have this permission? And I think people at the time said, well, maybe that makes sense because um, hand sanitizer, maybe it's flammable in large quantities. Except the FAA had looked at this uh, a decade earlier and decided that you know, hand sanitizer on planes was you know, resolutely not a risk. So even though they had de- studied and declared it not a risk, there are multiple layers of permission that an airline needs to even give hand sanitizer. Um, and by the way, before you're, when you're even buying your ticket, um, the way that airfare sale, airfares are advertised is directly regulated by the Department of Transportation. Uh, it's not like, you know, most companies figure out how to do it. They have to be in conformance with Federal Trade Commission rules. They have their own set of rules um, that are laid out by the Department of Transportation, which are different. You're, you're on the plane. The plane pushes back. Uh, the federal government tells the plane uh, where to go. Uh, the direction that it can fly, the altitude at which it can fly, because air traffic control, uh, which is uh, in the U.S., uh, not just regulated, but directly provided by the federal government, uh, which is not how it works in much of the world. <laughs> um, so, uh, in, in fact, um, transatlantic navigation is provided by you know, Nav Canada, which is not a you know, federally run uh, entity. Um, so there's no fundamental reason it has to be done by the government, but literally virtually every step of the way is, uh, directly, uh, either dictated, provided or specified, you know, or granted by the federal government. So you have this, I mean, this, the, the difference in some sense between a private, uh, privately run experience and the federal one is, is, is a strange distinction in a way, even though we think about airlines having been deregulated based on the 1978 Airline Deregulation Act. Uh, what really changed then is before that, um, interstate airlines had to get permission from the federal government for where they could fly and what they could charge. And that was basically what was changed in 1978 is that airlines could decide where to fly themselves without asking permission uh, and they could set their own prices. And that's what deregulation meant. And yet, even though it's deregulated, it's one of the most heavily regulated uh, industries. So, yeah, I mean, and now they openly say, yeah, the, the federal government, yeah, they own this. Seems like a, well, look at that, they're admitting this. But I was about to say, it seems like a ridiculous amount of regulation and just a little bit of deregulation right there. I want to ask you something indirectly related to airline bailouts. A few months ago, I talked to Tim Carney about the Export-Import Bank, or as many people call it, the Bank of Boeing, because Boeing is one of its biggest partners, I guess you could, clients. We know that Congress and various administration have gone out of their way for ways for decades to subsidize Boeing. How much of these subsidies for airlines are a way to help Boeing since the airlines buy Boeing planes? Well, they don't all. Um, So Delta, for instance, hasn't bought a new Boeing aircraft in many, many years. They've bought almost exclusively uh, Airbus uh, and where they've acquired Boeing aircraft, it's been on the used market. Um, So, uh, you know, and and American Airlines had been an exclusive uh, Boeing customer, you know, for its entire history almost. Uh, If you include um, you know, the Douglas aircraft, which was acquired by Boeing. Um, it had been almost an exclusively a Boeing, um, uh, Boeing uh, operator until uh, a decade ago when they began to buy Airbus aircraft. Uh, it's not only the case that U.S. airlines buy 
by Boeing. Although certainly subsidies to the aircraft manufacturer, I mean, the incidence of that you know, benefits the, uh, the, the customer as well, uh, many of which are U.S. airlines and foreign airlines as well. Um, so there's, I mean, there, there's multiple elements to this. And I wonder, though, you know, how much Boeing needed this. They, you know, during the period of time when the export import bank wasn't making loans, they did, you know, just fine, uh, backed on the private market and they're large enough that they can provide, you know, creative uh, financing deals themselves. Uh, they, uh, frankly, were doing, you know, better perhaps than they did, uh, immediately prior to the pandemic. Uh, for reasons of their own making, of course, uh, the 737 MAX uh, debacle problems with their 787 project and their new uh, you know, next generation of Boeing 777s. They've, they've had engineering problems uh, that are you know, going to outweigh any benefit that the government could provide. So you've written many times about some of the reforms you would like to see in the airline industry. Can you give a few examples of some of those? Sure. You know, fun. This is the thing is that I'd love to see a more competitive uh, industry uh, than we have. And because I, th- I write mostly from the perspective of the consumer. And, you know, w- in order to have that, it's, you know, there's a, right now, there's a very limited window in which airlines compete. And they are pretty competitive in, in that dimension. And that's just price. You know, they're pretty much selling a commodity product from A, you know, travel from A to B uh, and at, at different price points. And they're you know, good at price discrimination. But there's very little um, innovation in terms of uh, business model. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But uh, to create space for some of that, you know, th- I would say first, you know, I would want to see uh, restrictions lifted on who can invest in an airline. So there are foreign ownership limits uh, in, uh, for U.S. airlines. Uh, I don't think those make sense. But lifting those alone don't make uh, the difference that allow for um, you know, more capital into, you know, more innovative new business model. And lar- the biggest constraint is um, access to uh, gates uh, at congested airports, as well as slots in a handful of the most congested airports. You know, airline airports are owned by uh, local governments. They tend to you know, l- enter long-term leases for gates. New gates uh, can't by law be made truly exclusive, but effectively they wind up being used by the uh, incumbent players. And there's a lot of uh, regulatory capture at the local level. So when Delta, for instance, was renewing its lease with the Atlanta airport, um, the you know, local officials agreed as part of that process you know, to put a stop to the development of a, of a second airport in the region so that there'd be less competition uh, for Delta. Uh, you know, this is something that we see play out over and over. In fact, in Atlanta, when JetBlue began service, the airport made it very difficult for JetBlue to get access to gates uh, uh, or to you know, at all desirable gates because it was a competitor to their largest, uh, most important constituent uh, in, in Delta. Uh, you know, I would love to see uh, a reform of how you know of government airports uh, make space available at gates. It's you know, not at all clear why governments need to own these airports in much of the world. They do not. Um, but, you know, they're kept as a, uh, as a revenue source where the revenues, the ability to use the revenue is highly limited by federal rules. Um, you know, I'd also think that, you know, there are a handful of airports where the government gives out slots, take the, the right to take off and land uh, to existing airlines. 
New York LaGuardia, New York JFK, Washington National Airport, uh, and it's much more common and elsewhere in the world. The government gives out the right to to an airline. It's a gift of something that has value. It's a subsidy, and it keeps other airlines out of the market. And then they're effectively uh, permanent grants that airlines can even sell to other carriers. So they're giving something valuable that can be sold or they often use as collateral and loans. And what I would either want to see is instead of permanent grants of the right to take off and land at congested airports, uh, a uh, an auction for a 10-year lease, um, or uh, even perhaps more desirably, but there are political reasons that this would be less likely, is just moving to congestion pricing. Uh, when, at times when airports are uh, congested, uh, charge more for takeoff and landing. And so you um, allocate what's effectively a scarce resource uh, based on uh, the value that's being created in that flight and therefore the airline's willingness willingness to pay for it. And so only the most valuable traffic you know, goes at the at peak times and people that are say not willing to spend as much money on a ticket um, you know will uh, take a less convenient flight. Um, you know, because there is it's, it's got to be a question of who flies and where during this time if it's a limited resource. So there are ways of managing it other than just you know giving it as a as a subsidy or a gift to to an existing airline that makes it difficult you know for any new airline to enter the market. Uh, even for instance, an airline that was once an upstart, uh, sort of the you know David versus Goliath story of Southwest Airlines, where you know Southwest was nearly strangled in its uh, in in its crib by the major airlines kept you know almost kept from operating in court. Uh, became a crony itself. They originally started service at Dallas Love Field. It's the closer in airport in Dallas. And all and the uh, incumbent airlines had agreed to move to the new Dallas Fort Worth air, airport. Southwest was not a party to that agreement because they didn't even exist at the time. And so they said, okay, we're going to start flying out of Love Field. That's the close in airport. And we're trying to serve only uh, the uh, market inside of Texas, which was an interesting play at the time because by only flying within Texas, they weren't subject to uh, federal airline regulations. This was pre-1978. Um, and so they could charge what they wanted, which was to charge lower fares. They didn't have to get the government's permission for low fares. Um, so they said, you know, so they were sued over this idea that they could fly out of Love Field. And they basically won, but eventually uh, the, what was, you know, the Wright Amendment, uh, you know, Jim Wright was Speaker of the House and represented, you know, incumbent airlines from Texas, uh, more or less, uh, who boxed in the ability of Southwest Airlines to fly out of Love Field except to contiguous states. Uh, and they couldn't fly beyond that. Now, that was eventually loosened, but Southwest was in the room um, as part of negotiations for how that would be loosened. And you know, just like they were limited in what they could do, uh, one of the things that Southwest got as part of the loosening of the Right Amendment was a reduction in the number of gates at Dallas Love Field. There used to be uh, 32 gates at the airport. Now there are just 20, uh, of which Southwest controls 18. Uh, so they more or less have a monopoly at the airport because uh, they got the government to mandate the destruction of 12 gates. And then, uh, so there were one of, some of these gates were uh, the old legend airlines terminal, which is another crazy cronyous story in, in, in itself, which I'll tell you in a second. Um, 
well, this terminal was no longer allowed to be used for uh, for air travel. Uh, the owners of the terminal, well, they technically leased the land and they you know, built the building, had the land taken from them through uh, eminent domain. Uh, so they stopped paying rent on it. And the government actually argued that they should get nothing in exchange because it couldn't be used as a terminal because of the right amendment. Um, and you know they argued that well changes in the law that were coming uh, were going to allow it to be you know used for for more uh, purposes. Uh, but they but they lost, and so they basically got nothing uh, nothing for it. Legend Airlines was a uh, startup twenty years ago uh, that was an all business class airline flying out of love field. And the interesting carve out in the way the right amendment was written that let uh, Southwest airlines fly only to these contiguous States is it said that, you know, that planes that had fewer than 56 seats could uh, fly anywhere they wanted. And so what legend did is they took regular jets and put fewer seats in them. They were just all business class seats. And so they flew from Dallas love field to Los Angeles and New York and DC uh, places like this. And naturally they were sued by all of the airlines saying, you know, but that's not what was intended to, you know, you should only be able to use small planes, uh, not, you know, offer a good quality service uh, out of, out of love field. And they ultimately sort of won, um, but they spent so much in legal fees that the startup airline was kind of drowned in its infancy. Uh, they lost too much money and went out of business. By the way, when Legend Airlines was flying out of Love Field, American Airlines started flying out of Love Field with its own all business class service to competing markets. As soon as Legend went out of uh, business, uh, sort of strangled in its infancy, uh, American Airlines ceased this service uh, as well. Wow. That's. I mean, these stories are insane. It's just so surreal almost, but it actually happened. And this is the stuff that actually happens. So to close up, do you have any travel advice for a young listener or anyone really that you think is important or worthy of, t- of our time? Sure. Um, let me let me offer a few things in, in sort of rapid succession. I guess I would say um, uh, first of all, uh, you know, I mentioned at the beginning thinking about the people you deal with and the, the incentives they face because people can be helpful along the way or not helpful along the way, uh, and you know, and that makes the difference. And then to hang up and call back if you don't get the answer that you want, um, I would say. Uh, that you know, it's very difficult to get through to an airline to get that to, to get that help these days. In the case of American Airlines, you just call uh, a, a foreign call center if you can't get through. If there's a two-hour wait line for a, for a U.S. Uh, call center, for instance, call the um, you know the Australia number or the UK number, English-speaking call centers that don't get backed up in the same way when weather's bad here in the U.S. Um, is is one really useful uh, useful tip. Another is to think about uh, you know, rewards programs and, and recognize that you do gain value out of them if you, you know, are careful not to let them sway your you know, buying decisions too much. To at least register for the programs uh, and pick up the points where you can. Uh, the, you know, and I think generally picking up. Um, whether it's points or rebates for things that you're going to do anyway makes a lot of sense. Take for instance. 
almost anything that you buy online can earn either cashback or points if you go through a shopping portal to earn it. I usually start at a website called evreward.com. And if I'm going to buy something from, say, target.com, I type in target and it will show me all of the opportunities to earn airline miles, hotel points, or cashback just for clicking through the link uh, to do it. So I'm earning something that I whether what for something I'm buying anyway. So you're picking up these $20 bills in the street. Um, you know, so I do think paying attention to that and paying attention, you know, similarly to, you know, earning rewards for your, uh, credit card spend and earning the maximum possible rewards. Um, so, you know, it's useful to get a credit card provided you can make sure that you are only spending the amount that you're going to, you know, pay off in a month, uh, and that you're not spending more because you have a credit card uh, than if you were spending cash. So if you manage your money that way, uh, it, I prefer a credit card because uh, of the consumer protections. You know, you're effectively, if, if, with a debit card, money comes right out of your bank account. And then you have to get the bank's help to get it back if there's, uh, if your number is compromised or there's some other fraud. Whereas in the case of a credit card, you're generally not going to be uh, liable. It's their job to, to, to collect and deal with it and do the investigation. And you're not out the money while they do it. Um, as well as being able to earn rewards. It used to be you could earn rewards on uh, debit cards pretty easily, but that changed with the Durbin Amendment to the Dodd-Frank financial reform legislation uh, a dozen years ago uh, when the federal government basically said that it was no longer legal to make money on debit transactions. And so there was no longer a reason to incentivize debit transactions, uh, including by rebating some of the, the cost of those transactions back to the consumer, which also meant that since banks would subsidize free checking accounts uh, on the hope of getting the debit card transactions, it became harder to get free checking accounts and you get more unbanked uh, people uh, as an, I'd call it an unintended consequence of the law, except it was clear at the time that that would be the consequence. So it's sort of hard to call it unintended. But my point being that, um, uh, you know, credit cards <clears throat> can generate rewards, even if it's just a 2% cash back card, you know, pay attention to that or now, you know, built rewards uh, will give you uh, points for paying rent for free up to 50,000 points a year, which is pretty useful to, you know, folks that rent to a younger generation, um, as well as giving, uh, double points on travel and triple points on, on dining and being a no annual fee card still. Um, so, I mean, I think things where you're not paying, uh, you know, and give you real protections are things to be paying attention to. That is great advice. I think it's applicable to people of all ages. I, for one, am so glad, so thankful that you decided to say all of this because I need this advice. This is going to help me very much in my life. So thank you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're going to wrap up with our final question, which is, what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Well, I'll start with what I would have said at the beginning of the call, but that in some sense we've already discussed it. And so then I'll pivot and come up with something else. <laughs> okay. um, uh, you know, I would have said uh, I, that airlines are competitive and that's because they, you know, th that they're selling a commodity product and that there's, you know, lots of you know, market participants and, and, and price is trended downward. 
Um, but I think that over time, I've come to see that there's a limited amount of competition uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, I sort of explained some of the reasons why there's only a limited amount of space in which to compete, um, but also for some more micro reasons that um, airlines face incentives to kind of copy each other. And some of that has to do with uh, being you know, large public companies uh, that operate in similar lockstep that have some of the same ownership interests, but also that um, the executives themselves simply don't take a lot of risks, at least didn't pre-pandemic, um, to you know protect their uh, to protect their own jobs and standing. And that for the most part, say you know seven eight years ago, everyone in the in the industry thought that Delta executives were the smartest and they were the most successful, and so they all just sort of copied what Delta did, and there wasn't a lot of innovation. And so I do think that there's a lot more comp- room for competition than I used to um, uh, increase competition than I used to think. But since that's a little bit duplicative of what we already talked about, I guess I would step outside of the airline space and say, you know, when I was uh, younger, I used to focus a lot on um, uh, saving money uh, and now prefer to focus a lot on <clears throat> earning more money. And let me tell you what I, what, what I mean by that. You used to think about the, you know, the, the Starbucks cup of coffee and how much can I save by cutting out the Starbucks. And it's true that, you know, $5 a day over a working life, if you, you know, save it, uh, and invested at a, you know, aggressive, call it an 8% return, you're going to wind up with about a million dollars over that period of time, you know, compounded. And that's, so that's like important and the Starbucks worth a million to you. Um, and I say, well, maybe not, but you are giving up something. And I prefer to, um, uh, I, I prefer to focus on, um, rather the $35 a week savings. Like what could you do if you earn a couple hundred dollars extra a week? Uh, and you know, then it becomes okay to spend the $35 and save out of the rest. Um, and maybe that's just two hours a day at $15 an hour. But I think that there's a lot, there's really something to figuring out what people will pay you for versus taking, uh, an hourly job. Uh, one of the first things that I did, uh, uh 2009, uh, on the side as it were was to, then what do people ask me for advice on? And, you know, could I charge for that? And that's what I started to do in helping people use their frequent flyer miles and built a service on that that became a separate business. At the very least, you know, there are, and now there are all sorts of platforms. I mean, the fivers of the world that, you know, that, that let you, you know, connect with potential customers for services, um, to be able to do a little something extra and, and focus on that rather than, you know, what, what, how much, at the margin of your leisure time, do you actually value and can you generate something that, you know, more valuable and then focus? And so I, I guess what I used to believe was the focus on the saving the 35 and now I focus on the, you know, making the extra 200. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I don't know. I mean, I've definitely thought about savings, but it's more like, oh, geez, I need to stop spending money. I need to also get a job. So I need to do a little bit of both, but. <laughs> and, and one of the interesting pieces of advice that I was given when I was 24 years old by a partner of, um, original partner of Sir John Templeton, who was Templeton Funds, that's now Franklin Templeton, is he said, you know, save 50% of it out of every raise. And then you, you wind up with a lot of money and you never feel it. So every time you get a raise, you feel, you know, you, you treat yourself a little bit, like the 50% of it, um, but you, are saving incrementally more and more every time. Uh, and that that's money that you can more easily put aside than where you, f- you know, where you feel the direct trade-off with your current, uh, you know, w- with your current uh, income. 
Well, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guest once again for their time and insight. I would also like to thank everyone who listens, subscribes, and shares the Great Antidote podcast. If you would like to be on the podcast, have a guest in mind, or have a topic in mind, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at thecgo.org. Catch you next time. Bye.